Well, in this Bible, in this word this morning, I invite you to open a second time to the book of First Timothy in the New Testament in chapter 2. Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter in chapter 2, our second part we'll pick up this morning. Last month, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention voted to remove Saddleback Church from its membership of the convention for having a woman as a teaching pastor, which goes against the Southern Baptist Convention's adopted statement of faith. Saddleback Church, if you know that church, is the renowned California megachurch founded by pastor and best-selling author Rick Warren, who retired last year after 42 years of ministry. And his replacement, Pastor Andy Wood and his wife Stacy, when asked on these issues, said, quote, we believe that women can be gifted and empowered as teachers and as pastors. The Bible teaches, they say, that men and women were given spiritual gifts by God. Andy said, my wife has the spiritual gift of teaching and she's really good. People often tell me she's better than me when it comes to preaching, he said. Former Saddleback church pastor and founder Rick Warren defended the church's decision to ordain women as pastors. After 40 years of ministry, he said in these past couple years, he has changed his mind. And recently he laid out three passages from the Bible that led him to conclude that it is acceptable for women to serve in the office of pastor. He said, I used to believe the way others did until three years ago. I actually had to change because of scripture. Saddleback Church plans to appeal the decision by the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, my purpose in highlighting this very recent story, I read that some of that just last week, is not to disparage Rick Warren. Uh, he's a brother in Christ. He's been a faithful pastor for over 40 years. I trust God has used. Nor is it to comment on the polity of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I just highlight it to illustrate how relevant and how common these issues are in the church today. They are everywhere in the church today. Because of the enormous cultural pressure, both outside and now inside the church, we need to understand what the Bible says on these issues. And not, not just the specific subject of women in ministry, but the inseparable, in my mind, inseparable subjects of men, women, marriage, and gender. And that's the reason for our current series, this sermon series entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. That's what we're looking at. That is, we're looking at God's design of men and women and the implications of his design for life, for marriage, and for the church. And this is actually part 10 
in our series. Now, this particular controversy surrounding Saddleback Church, Southern Baptist Convention, directly relates to our passage this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this paragraph, verses 8 through 15, that I've entitled, Men and Women in the Assembly, that is, in the gathered church. That's what Paul is focusing on here. We, we have spent in our series, these 10 weeks, we've spent many weeks laying foundations from the beginning of Genesis, God's design, foundations, and observing patterns throughout the whole Bible of this complementary design of men and women. And now, in these weeks, we are looking more specifically in the New Testament at the application of this design and these patterns for both the church and then for family and marriage. I said last Sunday that First Timothy chapter 2, this paragraph, is the most, in my mind, is the most definitive and explicit statement in the Bible regarding men and women in the church. And the reason that is, is because this paragraph, that's Paul's subject. He is directly addressing the differing functions of men and women in the church. That is, he's not just an inference. We don't have to just draw inferences or implications. That is his subject. That is what he's addressing very explicitly. So let's read the paragraph again. Put it on the screen for you. I'll start back in verse 8 again. We looked at the first half last week and we're going to finish it this morning. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But she shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we focused on Paul's instructions to men and women in the assembly. And I use that language because we saw that's Paul's primary context. He's thinking as the church gathers, like we're doing this morning or maybe other gatherings of the church. As the church gathers, he's giving instructions, gender-specific instructions to men and women in the assembly. So we looked at those last Sunday and we finished with what is at the heart of this controversy today. Controversy at Saddleback and Southern Baptist and the controversy in many, many churches. That is, his specific instructions to women. Notably, verses 11 and 12. So I'll put that text back up on the screen and just highlight those where we left off last Sunday. Where he gives those specific instructions now to a woman. He's thinking of every woman in the gathering 
to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But, and here's the heart of it, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I argued last Sunday that how that verse is translated, that's the New American Standard Version, how that version or verses translated, I argued, is exactly what Paul means. That in the assembly, in the gathering of God's people, Paul says women are not to teach. And by teach, remember, he means authoritative doctrinal instruction. It's the way the word is used for Paul in the pastoral epistles. It's authoritative instruction. I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority. And by authority, exercising authority means that spiritual oversight and shepherding. Paul says, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over men. They are to learn. I want them to learn and they are to learn in quietness. So as the church gathers, and again, let me just stress that. Paul's primary context here is the assembly or the gathering of the church. He is thinking of spiritual authoritative instruction and exercising spiritual authority. If we want to try to apply these principles outside the gathering of the church, that's more difficult. That's not as clear. He's not giving instructions on the workplace. And authority. And leadership. So we have to be more careful as we think of outside the gathering of the church. Now, part of our task as elders, I told you at the beginning of the series where this series came from and all of our discussions and thinking through part of us discussing these things is in addition to preaching here is kind of laying out for our church how we see the implications of these texts for other areas in addition to our Sunday morning gathering. So that's part of what we will write and talk about and publish. I'm not going to preach all that because I just don't have time to think through every specific application. My desire here is to kind of give us the heart, the meat of the exegetical foundations for these things. But we said last week that at the very least, that would limit the office of elder pastor, where you see those two functions combined as the primary responsibility of those who give oversight in the church. They're called elders and pastors or elders and overseers. And it's not a coincidence that in chapter three, the next thing Paul's going to take up are the qualifications for overseers, for elders. And if you just turn the page over to chapter five, verse 17, he, he tells you what elders do. And he combines these two ideas of teaching and authority said let the elders who rule well that's their spiritual oversight or authority that's exercising authority let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching so those functions are combined there most notably in the office of elder now he's saying more than that more than just the office of elder he's talking about the functions but that was one very clear takeaway we ended with so I think Paul is clear in my mind. That's what he means. And I argued also that Paul intended this instruction for all churches for all time, including our church today. And that has been the overwhelmingly predominant view 
of church history. Alternative explanations of this verse, I argued, fall short. Cultural limitations of Paul's instructions are not warranted by the text or the greater context. The most common alternative explanation of these verses is what I've referred to before as this cultural argument. And that argument says, while Paul did give this limitation, that's what he meant. That's how you translate it. He met that restriction for women in the assembly. It was only, this argument says, it was only true for the church at Ephesus at that time because of the unique cultural and church context at Ephesus. And I tried to argue that that just won't work. Won't work in the context of Ephesus or the context of this book. Said that last week. However, I think the death nail to that cultural view is what Paul says next. What Paul says next in the text. So look at it again, verse 13. I'll put it back up on the screen for you because this is what we want to look at this morning. Verse 13. For, verse 13, notice that first word, I just underlined it. For, Paul is giving the reason or the grounds for his previous command. Specifically, verse 12, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet for or because. So Paul's going to give us his reason. It's the way that little word functions. Gar in Greek for gives reason or grounds. Paul uses that way 18 times in the pastoral epistles. He'll give a command or a statement and he'll give for the reason. That's what he's doing here. He's arguing. He's giving you logic and argument. So he's given the reason for the prohibition. And where does he go for his reason? Not to the culture at Ephesus. Not directly to the specific nature of the false teaching. No no doubt false teaching influences. That is, he doesn't just say women shouldn't teach because they're teaching false teaching. It's not where he goes. Where does he go? To the creation story. Where we've been. That's where we started. That's why we started there. He goes to the creation story. Because Paul sees meaning in the way that God designed things. In the way that God created. In those opening chapters of Genesis are meant to instruct us. That these specific instructions for the church. Are in keeping with and part of God's grand design. Of men and women. That's why we started in our study and have spent these many weeks trying to develop the foundations and the pattern through all of Scripture. Because Paul's instructions here don't drop out of nowhere. They're not just limited to, well, there's a certain thing going on in the culture of Ephesus, so I need to say this. They, Paul sees that this is part of the grand design of God, the creation design of God. All these things are connected. And here... He is helping us apply God's design to the specifics of the church as we gather. So let's look at, as we said we'll do this morning, we're just going to look at Paul's reasons. Because as we read them, they may not be as clear exactly what he's saying or exactly how they connect to his argument. So I want to slow down here and 
have us look at them. So men and women in the assembly, this is the second part. We want to see first the reasons for his command. That's what he's given. The reasons for his command. Specifically the command of verse 12, where Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet for. So he gives two reasons. Here's the first one. Number one, the order of creation. The order of creation. You see it? For it was Adam who was first formed and then Eve. Just one sentence. It was Adam who was first formed and then Eve. Paul is using this as a reason for his previous command. Now, Paul is obviously referring back to Genesis chapter 2. It's what he has in his mind. He even uses the specific word formed. Remember, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. He's using that word. So he's thinking of that creation story in Genesis 2, where we have the account of God forming the man and then creating the woman out of the man. Now, just I just want you to note that. Paul's reason for this command of verse 12 of, women in the assembly not teaching or authority, is not grounded in the fall. That is, it's not a result of the fall or the curse, but part of God's original creation good design. So just note that. God's original design. As Paul reads that story in Genesis chapter 2, he sees significance in how the order and how God created the man and the woman. Now, it's just a one-line statement, but, oh, it says so much. It says so much. Because when Paul is saying Adam was created first and then Eve, it's not just merely chronology, as if chronology gives you priority. It's not just that. There is chronology, but it's also the reason for the woman's creation in relation to man. How God did that and what is taught in that creation story. So we looked in our study. We spent a whole week in Genesis chapter 2. I gave you eight clues of complementarity from that chapter. So that God is intentionally very purposeful in how he created the man and woman. Not at the same time and not in the same way. If you remember when we looked at that. There's so many implications for why and how he did what he did. What is Paul drawing on here? I'll, I'll just give you two of them. Again, you can go back and listen. We, we spent a long time on that. First, the man's priority in the order of creation reveals his spiritual authority slash headship over the woman. That's his main point. The man's priority in the order of creation reveals, teaches, his spiritual authority or what we called headship, Paul calls it that elsewhere, over the woman. Now, Paul doesn't develop it any more than just that one line. He will develop it more in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll save that text. We'll get to that. He's going to draw this out. This Not just the order of creation, but how they were created, the reason for which they were created. But that's the main point. As he looks at the order of creation, remember Adam's first and then Eve. Eve is created in relation to Adam. Adam was created and Adam was commanded, Adam, before Eve was even created, Adam was commanded to work and to guard. 
the garden. Remember that? Not eat from this tree. And then the woman was created from the man to be his, in the language of Genesis 2, his helper corresponding to him. Should be like him, equal to him, and yet her function will be different as a helper corresponding to him. To partner, to assist the man in her uniqueness as the woman in carrying out God's mandate. God's creation mandate. So that Paul sees rightly in that created order, there is just that, an order of headship and helpership, we called it, authority and submission in that relationship. So that's what Paul's drawing on. There's meaning in the creation account. So that, here's the second observation, the man bore primary responsibility for the moral pattern of life in relation to the woman. The man bears the primary, not soul, but primary responsibility for the moral pattern. Again, those commands were given to Adam. He is charged with keeping. He is to lead. He is the priest-like figure there in the garden. The woman is created to come alongside and to help in her unique ways in carrying out this mandate. But he will bear the primary responsibility. That's this idea of leadership and exercising right spiritual Servant kind of leadership and authority for protecting the garden and for, for the woman herself, for her provision and protection. So that's what Paul sees, and that's how he's relating it back to the command. That's why I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over the man, because it goes back to the very creation design of God in men and women. Now, we might ask, well, isn't, isn't that true only of marriage? I mean, Adam and Eve are also, we learn, husband and wife. Isn't that kind of dynamic, that kind of relationship of headship, helpership, or authority submission, isn't that only true for marriage? But again, note, Paul here, as he refers to Adam and Eve, he's not thinking of their marriage relationship per se, but as representative of men and women. They're the first Man, the first woman, they represent man and woman. Adam, representing man, and the woman, Eve. You'll just say the woman here. That is, I'll argue that there is something woven into the very fabric of manhood and womanhood by virtue of creation that corresponds to spiritual function. A creation designed by God that we're supposed to see as we read those early chapters of Genesis. That these spiritual functions of leadership, authority, helpership, submission are not arbitrary. It's not just that God said, well, I gotta pick one, the other, and just roll the dice, and doesn't matter. You're equal in every sense. You're the same in every sense. No, it is based on this design of God. It's not arbitrary. Manhood and womanhood, if we've been learning in this series, are not social constructs. They are written into our nature. They're on your chromosomes. So you can 
try to do whatever you want to change that, but they're written into your design, to our design as men and women. So just as in our day with all of the gender dysphoria and gender changing and things going on that are in many ways unprecedented, just as we as Christians, we believe gender is not arbitrary. That is, it's not a social construct. It's woven into our biology. So get this. Neither are gender-specific roles and functions arbitrary social constructs. They are in keeping with God's design. That's what Paul's going at. He's going back to the very creation, design, pattern of men and women. That's really profound and foundational. You can't go to a more foundational reason for his command. So, yes, it applies to marriage. We'll get to that in our series. But it goes beyond that. To the spiritual people of God. Think of this. Think of the church. The Bible does this. As a spiritual family. That is analogous to the physical family. In fact that's the Bible's probably. New Testament's number one. Description or metaphor of the church. Is the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. And the same spiritual functions that happen in marriage and in the family have an analogy in the church. So we need in the church spiritual husbands and fathers to give spiritual oversight, to take on that primary responsibility of leading and We need spiritual wives and mothers in that essential role of helping to ensure the godliness, the fruitfulness of the body, just as they do in the home, in that relationship of husband and wife, so too in the church. The same principles apply because they're based on God's Design. So it's a really deep reason. We could spend a long time there just on verse 13 of God's design. But that's the first reason. Paul says, the reason I'm giving this command, because I'm going back to creation, because Adam was created first and then Eve, this order of creation. Second reason follows on. Number two, what I'll title the reversal of the order. The reversal of the order. Verse 14, he continues, and... It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Verse 14 now is closely related to verse 13. He's not giving a a completely separate reason or basis. It's really following. Adam was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I think verse 14 serves to illustrate in a negative way the truth of verse 13. Paul and his thinking now moves from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. He thinks of creation design and then he thinks of what happens in the fall, how the fall 
came about. What does he mean by this? Now, this is not as easy. It's not as easy. What does he mean? Adam was not to see. Why is, why is he saying that? And what does he mean by it? Now, a, a very traditional interpretation has argued that what Paul is saying is that women are more prone to spiritual deception than men due to their differing natures and proclivities as helpers, not leaders. Because of this creation design by God that women are more prone, their weakness is more prone to spiritual deception. Men have weaknesses in other areas where women don't as much, but in this one, women, so therefore they shouldn't serve in this teaching authoritative role. Now, as I said, that's a traditional interpretation. It helps make sense of the text, why Paul is limiting this office or this function uh, to just men here. I'm not convinced <laughs> that that's what Paul is saying. It could be. I'm not convinced. The reason I'm not convinced of that, a few reasons. Firstly, I, I think no matter how you try to try to say that and spin that and dress that up, at the end, it still implies what seems to be a spiritual intellectual inferiority of women to men in their basic design. Remember, we're not talking about fallen, right? This is before the fall. So yeah, as a result of sin, we have different weaknesses and temptations here and sinful inclinations. But this is, this is God's good design, and I, I think it would call into question God's good design to say that. So that's one reason I'm hesitant to say that. But also... Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul himself not only allows, but encourages women to teach. We'll see that in Titus and other. They are certainly encouraged to teach their children and other contexts. They are encouraged to teach. So I, it would just seem odd that if they have greater propensity to temptation, that's why he's limiting their teaching, that he would encourage them elsewhere to teach. Remember, the point Paul is trying to make, a, make here is in relation to men. They shouldn't teach over men, not just not teach absolutely. It's not just a design flaw, so to speak, that they have a greater tendency, in my mind, to deception. But he's talking more specifically about men. So it's another reason why I don't think that's what he's saying. Lastly, to, to view that Adam was not deceived. That's what he says, right? Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived. To view that Adam was not deceived, but we know that he just, he sinned. He's held responsible. He just sinned willfully. That would seem to undermine Paul's argument that men should teach. Wouldn't it? If the point of Paul saying in verse 14 is that women are more susceptible to deception... But Adam, the first man, just sinned willfully and disobediently. I don't think that exonerates Adam. Like, I don't think that's a badge on Adam saying you should be a teacher because you just sinned eyes wide open, right? I think I'd probably like the woman here, <laughs> right? So it just it doesn't seem to make sense of the argument in my mind uh, here. As I said, he's not exonerating Adam. Eve's, Eve's deception is not seen here as a description or a characteristic of all women. 
In fact, one other place when Paul refers to the deception of Eve, he applies it to the whole church, not just to women. So anyway, that's all those. I don't think that's what Paul is saying, that women are more susceptible to spiritual deception. Therefore, they shouldn't teach. So what is he saying? What, what is this point? Again, I think you got to keep verses 13 and 14 together when he's talking about order, verse 13, Adam was created first and then Eve. There wasn't, wasn't Adam who was created first, who had this spiritual authority, who had this responsibility of leadership, but it wasn't him. It was Eve who fell into transgression. What, what's the point here? I'll give you just these two things. The serpent deceived the woman, not Adam. A complete reversal of the divine design or order in creation. Paul's focus is on the order and the implications of that order. So we have Adam created first, then Eve, and then what do we have right away? A reversal. We noted that when we were in Genesis 3. We noted the serpent's craftiness in approaching the woman, not the man. He engineered this complete reversal of God's design that led to the fall. It seemed to be a deliberate, intentional by the craftiness of the serpent. I think that's what's going on here. When it says there in verse 14, and it's really shocking when we first read this, and it was not Adam who was deceived. What does that mean? Again, I don't think Paul's trying to say Adam just gets off glowingly here compared to the woman. Because we know he doesn't. It's Paul who says that sin entered through the man, through Adam. Adam's held responsible. So what's that mean? Again, I think it means he wasn't deceived by the serpent. He wasn't approached. The order was reversed. It was Eve who was approached and was deceived. Not Adam. We always ask, where was Adam? We learn later in the text that he's there somewhere, just going right along with it. Where is Adam? Remember that? Why isn't he leading? Why isn't he protecting? Why isn't he subduing? Why is he abdicating his responsibility here? Because he is. So please don't read that as saying, oh, somehow men are superior to, to women here. That's what Paul's trying to to teach morally superior because, after all, it was Eve that was deceived. Right? It's like that old joke. Where would man be without woman? In the garden? You get that? No. Now I say, yeah, but he would be all alone and lonely. <laughs> That's not what Paul's trying to say, that uh, somehow there's a superiority here of Adam... No, Adam's responsible. Adam, where are you here? The serpent approached Eve, not Adam. He reversed the order. Adam is responsible. Adam's headship, we see it. So why does Paul bring this up? Here's what I think it is. I think he gives a foundational example of the damage that results when God's order of leadership is subverted. It's a pretty powerful example. The very fall of the human race. Adam was created first, then Eve. This implied order and this implied spiritual leadership, responsibility, authority. And then what's he say? And then it was just right away reversed. 
So it results to the fall. This, this pattern of godly male leadership all through the Bible is subverted here. So it's a warning, Paul gives. He's just pointing back to the beginning. So, so there are Paul's two reasons. And I said they are really weighty foundational reasons. He's going back to the beginning, to God's creation design, God's intention in the creation of the man and woman. And how the implications of that for headship and helpership and leading and then the disaster that resulted as the tempter subverted it. Those are powerful. I hope you'll consider those. Paul ends where I want to end here. He ends with a concluding qualification. Verse 15. He's done with his reasons. This isn't part of his argument anymore. He's just going to end this paragraph where he has been specifically in the last several verses speaking to women. He's going to end with a a concluding qualification. Verse 15. But women, or better, but she shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now that is a very difficult verse. I think it's the most difficult verse in the book of Timothy to understand exactly what Paul is saying there. It seems to follow on. Here's, here's the flow of thought, I think, that Paul has in mind here. After saying that it was, wasn't Adam, but it was the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. But he's giving this qualification, and I think he means it to be positive. That is, although... The woman was deceived, and yes, she fell into transgression. Women do not remain under the permanent displeasure of God. She shall be saved. There's gospel hope here, right? So I think that's the flow where he's going. He's giving this qualification. I don't want, I don't want it to end on that with the women, women being deceived and falling into transgression. There's still gospel hope for women and men, certainly. But again, he's focused on women. She, he uses the singular there, mine translates it women, it should be she will be saved. Like he's done all through this section, he's focused singular on women and he's just talked about Eve. So Eve, as she represents every woman, she shall be saved. But then he changes at the end to the plural, if they, meaning women in general. So he moves from that singular to to make clear that he's talking about not just Eve here, he's talking about all women be saved again in Paul's mind he says she will be saved through childbirth and that's where it's hard I, you can see Paul's thought he's, he's got Genesis 3 in mind and this reversal of the order in the fall but then what happens next as he's thinking of women well what happens next is God's judgment comes and the consequences of this fall And how does that relate to women? Well, childbirth, right? That's what he focuses in on in Genesis chapter 3. It's probably what's tipping him to to go here. It could certainly be uh, this false teaching that we've mentioned a few times that's happening at Ephesus does seem in some ways to target women. We're told in chapter 4 that part of what they're teaching is forbidding marriage. So maybe encouraging women not to be married or not to submit to these more quote-unquote traditional roles. That could be the influence of why he goes here. Don't know for sure, but that's what he says. 
women shall be saved through childbirth, through childbirth. Now, there are numerous proposed interpretations of what he means there. I'm not going to run through them all. There are a lot. It's, it's a lot. You can wrestle with it. I said, this is not germane to his previous argument. He's ending with this qualification. I'll give you my one line summary. Okay. Here's my one line summary of what I think he's saying. Women will experience final salvation as they embrace their unique God given design while persevering in faith and holiness. I think that's the gist of what he's saying. Women will experience fight. When he says women will be saved, Paul uses that word every time, especially the Timothy and the pastoral epistles, to refer to salvation. That is, delivered from sin and judgment and final salvation. So he's not thinking just of justification, the moment a person is saved, but he's thinking of final salvation here. She will be saved. That's how he uses it every time. But what it gets hard is he says he'll be saved through childbirth. And that's the hard part of this here. And I, again, lots of different thoughts on that, but I think he is going to that because of his context of Genesis 3 that he's in and perhaps the presence of false teachers here, that it represents, childbirth represents the woman's unique role in distinction from the man. The central, divinely intended difference, right, of men and women. This God-honoring role that's so unique to women and distinct from men. And so I think he's representing that through this most obvious way. Again, please don't mishear him. Because not all women are married. Not all women have children. He knows that. But this is representative of the unique design of women. But just to avoid confusion, he clarifies there, because it would be weird to say women are saved by child. I mean, if they give birth to child, children, they're going to be saved. Well, again, I think he's pointing to this design of women, but then he adds, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. To avoid confusion, salvation is by faith, right? in Christ alone. Right? Not by childbirth. Salvation is by faith, but he is saying that if they continue in this faith and love and sanctity, holiness with self-restraint, as they continue in their faith. So that's why I think it means women will experience final salvation as they embrace their unique God-given design while persevering in faith and holiness. Something to that effect. So that's, I just end, I want to end with that. I want to end and just be done here. We'll, we'll keep going at these the subject with this application because i think paul's ending here on a positive application a positive conclusion specifically to women after saying yes there's a restriction here in teaching and exercising authority in the assembly over men and giving those reasons that he gave in verses 13 and 14 he ends on this i think positive note women and here it is it's an encouragement to women to embrace with joy and faith God's unique, your unique, I should say, God-given design and calling for your spiritual good. 
for your spiritual protection, for your spiritual health and good, embrace God's unique, beautiful design of you as women. Don't run from it. Don't resent it. I think that's the positive ending of this paragraph here. And so I just encourage women, encourage you that way. You are essential to our church, to the church family. If we think of the analogy of the family again, as mothers and wives, spiritually, you're, you're essential. Don't, don't let this text simply be a focus on what one can't do. Or be resentful. Oh, seek to use your creativity, your discernment, your gifts, your abilities as women to build up the family, the body of Christ in the ways that God calls. We'll try to flesh some of those out in the coming weeks. But all of that, women, I just encourage, men and women, but he's speaking to women here specifically, is, is a trust in God's good design. It's not a mistake. And that he is good and, and this development of a godly contentment and joy in how he made you and how essential that is to being image bearers, yes, and to being part of the family of God. Lean into it. Embrace it with joy and faith that God is good and his design is good and he knows best for his church. God's design is better. It's better for the nurturing of men and women, better for our fulfillment, better for our protection. His design of the church is best. May we believe that with all our heart and embrace it and flourish in it. We'll pick this up more. We'll have to flesh those things out more. I want to pray. We're going to sing one more time this new song that we learned. We want to end with just gospel hope. That is our hope, right? None of these things will make sense to you if you aren't in relationship to God through Christ. Believing that God made you and believing that he remakes you in Christ. These things won't make sense to you. So that's the beginning point is faith in Christ alone is our only hope. Let me pray and then we'll sing to end. Oh, Father, help us to believe your word uh, we confess there are difficulties, and I know there are disagreements. May we hold things with charity, and yet with conviction. And may you teach us how to live out this unique design that you have made us in your image. Christ is our only hope in life and death. We believe that, and we cling to him, though we are fallen Though we are sinful, though we often stray from your good design, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, and there is ultimate hope in Christ. We bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.